Consumption Log 7 Hey everybody, <laughs> welcome to the Actual Garbage Podcast, Consumption Log Boo Bop. This is David Paddock. To my left, we have Ryan Riley. Yes, sir. To his left, we have Nicole Paddock. Here. And to her left, for the first time on a movie podcast, Mitchell Londrigan. Hello there. We're here to talk about the man who wasn't there. Well, then where was he? That's a great question. Thank Nicole, you. could you please explain? Never mind. Ryan, could you please explain? This was your pick. Yes. So don't change the channel, but The Man Who Wasn't There is an existential film noir. Glad you're still with us. He is. It's an existential th- film noir by the Coen brothers. It stars Billy Bob Thornton, uh, Francis McDormand, uh, James Gandolfini, uh, Scarlett, young Scarlett Johansson. Yes, very, very young Scarlett very young Johansson. Scar jo. And um, it, once again, it is, a, it is a filmed in black and white, uh, released in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003-ish. 2001-ish, I think. All right, yeah, well, this is right. easy on the particulars here. I'm a big, a big picture guy. So the thing is that this movie is a... The big picture you need to understand is that this is a Coen Brothers movie, and uh, it is one of my top three Coen Brothers movies. I have reconfirmed this. It was always rotating top five, top three possibly. I would like to firmly cement this in my top three Coen Brothers movies now. And uh, it deals, I think, with a lot of different aspects I think we'll like to try to get to here today. Like I said, it is filmed in black and white. It is one of the more cinematic. I think it's very lushly filmed. And I think it's also where there are uh, a lot of the themes that they have developed over the course of their of their career that I think is probably best expressed in this. There are flashes of what I would argue this kind of existential loneliness, uh, this existential un- unconnectedness that occurs yes. in a lot of Coen Brothers films. Um, if you go back to Barton Fink, Barton Fink very much deals with the idea of the artist as unconnected. If you go back to Fargo, there's a lot of odd unconnectedness there. And this film, I think, takes a, a very good approach to it in general. And now, overall, it's like I said, it's one of my favorite Coen Brothers films, and I'd like to maybe go around and get your guys' initial impressions to this thing as well to see how uh, to see how it stacks up. Okay, well, this is also one of my favorite Coen Brother films, uh, though I have not seen True Grit. Um, I love this movie. Is all just kind of like it has a style and a feel to it that really that really drives it, and I I love it. Like Billy Bob Thornton is an excellent excellent existential actor when used correctly yes. and this is probably the pinnacle of his existential i mean bad santa is a close and i think the coen brothers produced bad santa yes like you know you know that that one gets close to the like pinnacle of 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 billy bob thornton existentialist but this one really i think takes it to probably like the highest peak you could you could really go and yes. i it's it's a, it's a it's a goofy movie. I can see why this might not be everyone's favorite, but I just I just love the way this movie feels, the way it flows, the way it has like that Kafka-esque trial yes. feel where, you know, everything's just moving around and you can't the people are 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 involved, but they're not involved. Yes. And uh yeah, it's a, it, it's a good time. Mitchell I liked it. I think it was the fourth, only the fourth Coen Brothers movie that I had seen, so I have less experience with this. Is it in your top three? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I'd say it's probably in my top three. It actually reminded me a lot of, uh, or a little bit at least, of Burn After Reading, which I also mm-hmm. enjoyed. Um, different setting, of course, different different characters, but just the kind but of way... same old Coen brothers. The way that everything was put together um, just kind of reminded me of that movie, and I like both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And also adds to my limited total of black and white movies that I've seen. But Excellent. Yeah, it was, uh, in general, pretty good. How many of those black and white movies were unnecessarily black and white? Well, uh, by unnecessarily, do you mean filmed after 1950? Yes. Uh, probably all but one. I'd like to make a note. They stopped separating color and black and white Oscars in like, I think it was 66 mm-hmm. was the last 66. year that they didn't have a separate category for black and white films. Yes. Yeah, so, so technically Psycho was still Fair in the enough. realm of, so, of, so, yeah. of black and white. So of those, I, th- I think uh, I went over the list. I've seen uh, Psycho, seen uh, it's, from, it's a Wonderful Life, 12 Angry Men, Pleasantville. Yes. Uh, Memento, which is both of those movies are kind of half black and white. And then uh, now The Man Who Wasn't There. So you're like 50% actual black and white, 50% artistic choice black and white. I'd say so. Excellent. My black and white ups are at least that bad, if not worse. So that's absolutely not judgmental. I was just curious. Um, The Man Who Wasn't There is, I'm sure we can use existential all day, but being a Coen Brothers movie... It's a small town thriller, so existentialism, small towns, basically go hand in hand. When you have that much time to think, that's what happens. Um, <laughs> the the Coen brothers' attitude in this movie is in force. I mean, Billy Bob Thornton, for being the narrator and the protagonist, yes. really still doesn't talk all that much. Well, it, it, that's one of his first lines is like, I don't talk much, mm-hmm. hence why we have to have him narrating. And then he apologizes at the end of the movie for being wordy. Mm-hmm. Because he's supposed to be writing this for a men's magazine. The the attitude of this movie is very strong. I don't know that I like this movie as much as the other Coen Brothers movies I've seen. Yes. Because it's just, it's not my speed. But the um, the way that this movie tackles the, not the ineffectual side, mm-hmm. but the dangerously effectual side of someone in... This very passe, life-moves-on world that everyone in this town lives in, when someone actually pushes a domino over, that catastrophe occurs in this way. This movie is, everyone's got this little bit of tension. You know, there's some marital affairs going on here. There's some weird entrepreneurial VC double play going on. That's all, but that's all simmering. All it takes is someone to open the lid just to crack. I mean, basically... Ed's Ed Crane, the protagonist, Billy Bob Thornton, the barber, Thank um, you. the not not the principal barber. Yes, um, second chair. He does so little. He does so little to make this happen. I mean, it, granted, I mean, sending a blackmail notice. I mean, that's that's a criminal it offense. Is, it is crime. Sure, but it's not but, that much, and it normally does not lead to what five murders. And two like two arrests. It's not normally this bad. Yeah, four. Mm-hmm. It's four. Well, I mean, you know, Pansy, Ed, Big Dave, both uh, the girl husband and wife. Herself. Yeah. Um, okay, four. Four. All right, yeah. only four murders on account of a blackmail for ten grand on a marital affair. You know. Yeah. But that's, but that's that was how actually the, one of the few things that was accurate, though. I mean, like Big Dave was actually having an affair with his wife because he didn't even technically know that till he wrote the letter and then that was like okay confirmation this mm-hmm. is this is for real and i mean Anne probably also went insane so 
and uh, was yeah. Big Dave's yeah. Well, wife. she was already on the way to but insanity. That's, but that's like the thing. A, she had this under... That was exactly yeah, what yeah. I love about this movie is the way that these things are all simmering under the hood. Anne doesn't appear in her veiled, mysterious... Like, I love the little dots yes. that basically look like they're floating in front of her. <laughs> that was all in her head before Big Dave died. No, and a, now it's out and she's crazy, clearly. Yeah, because yes. yeah, she says it, start, it all started a year ago. So, like, that had been simmering up for a long time. But, to the point where she thinks Big Dave's murder is a government conspiracy to hide the hose. Yes, exactly. And she was ready. <laughs> she was ready with that. And if anyone... Just at one point, something snapped. All of this happens. Well, and weirdly enough, if it, the idea that this would be a government conspiracy, like the whole unfolding of this film, Big Dave murder, Big Dave's murder, had this been an alien conspiracy, it's only slightly less insane than the actual story that actually that unfolded. So it's oh, yeah. kind of yeah. So no, well, let's, let's catch everyone up here. So Ed Crane is a barber in Santa Rosa, California. He married into it. He, he married, married into it. Oh, we. I mean, continue yeah. that. That's going to come up. Yeah. Well, that's my one of my favorite things from uh, the uh, the um, uh, No Country for Old Men. You know, you married into it. You like yeah, goes the, to the shopkeeper the, the guy. The gridlock of happenstance yes. here yeah. is crazy. But continue. So yeah. So Ed Crane is a barber, second chair in a barber shop. His uh, wife's brother own, uh, now owns the barber shop after his uh, uh, after uh, inherited uh, it. after he inherited it. Yep. Uh, his wife uh, Frances McDormand uh, works at Nerdlinger's department store where she keeps the books. She's the uh, uh, accountant of the the bookstore. Big Dave is runs the uh, Nerd, Nerdlinger's but department store. But he also married into it. He also married into it from Anne's, uh, uh, through Anne Nerdlinger, his wife. And uh, the basic crux of the movie is, you're absolutely right, uh, Ed Crane's wife, Frances McDormand, is having an affair with James Gandolfini, Big Dave. And Ed Crane, in the first 12 minutes of the movie, concocts a uh, a, a blackmail scheme in order to invest in a new fangled crazy idea called dry cleaning. Which he's heard about because of in a, a pitch that lasted 45 seconds while he was cutting a guy's yeah, hair. Yeah, well, cu- cutting a guy's hair uh, while he, uh, well, who came into the store. So, I mean, the movie, and I want to emphasize this as well, part of the reason I like this and part of the enjoyment of the Coen brothers is to see the way that they are able to work a story. And I think that the Coen brothers work a story better than most filmmakers out there. In this case, the plot of this film is, once again, deceptively complex. And at the same time, uh, the way that this unfolds is very, very well done. Uh, You'll notice as you watch through the film, there are these kinds of pauses where the screen will fade to black and a new scene will go in. And if we're familiar with, for example, like Wes Anderson films, they did breaking a film into chapters of a book. I mean, this film really does kind of have a several act or several chapter-like way that it unfolds to it. And I just would like to emphasize that... If you are planning on watching this movie, and if you have watched this, I'm going to like to get some pushback on this. Uh, this film employs two important me- me- mechanisms that I think we need to discuss in detail here. The first is, is that this is a film that is in black and white. However, it, Roger Deakins, the cinematographer that yes. has worked with the Coens multiple times, uh, filmed this in color, and then they transferred it to a black and white shot. And, and believe it or not, this actually does something very, very interesting to the film. Some of the most beautiful shots of the film are both the highly, uh, you know, where you see this contrast between dark and light. One of my favorite scenes is when Ed is smoking in the in the uh, in the doorway to the bathroom, and his wife is taking a bath in the brightly lit room. The start, co- the the outline of Crane with her in the bathroom and the simple little, you know, suburban fifties bathroom like scenery. I think this is a really shocking scene. But my other favorite visual from this film 
uh, also that employs this high contrast is the scene where the lawyer is going to give his defense, or he's going to tell the tell Ed and uh, his wife the defense that he's going to have it. In that case, you see this starkly framed dark uh, silhouette that, that goes through the, the, the outside of the frame, and then he's brightly lit, but his whole body, except right up to his mouth, where he's <laughs> smiling, is brightly lit. And when I saw this in the theater for the first time, that just, like, shone through. That was, like, blindingly, like, shone through. This little smile that he has just as he is contentedly sitting there, Really, really amazing stuff. So, the next thing that I want to get to as well is that this also this film also employs voiceover, and this is sometimes controversial, believe it or not, in the film world. Some people say that if you write a story well enough, you don't need voiceover, and I I, I disagree to a certain extent. But the way that the film unfolds, the way it's cut, and the seamlessness in which the voiceover comes through, the the humor that comes through in the voiceover, I think is one of the most important elements in this film. So, guys. I got the idea of black and white, the the look of the film, the feel of it, and then in what way does the voiceover itself? I mean, did you guys anything about the voice about the voiceover appeal to you at See, all, I or not? It or worked turn you because off? Because we we are borrowing a lot from various different film noirs from the fifties. Mm -hmm. uh, this movie borrows all over the place, and you know a lot of those voiceover was pretty common. Like it was in the Maltese Falcon and stuff. You know, you got Humphrey Bogart mm -hmm. talking over the top. You know, directing the action or lack there. Yeah. Of really in that movie, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's funny because you know you you pointed out some scenes that really struck you. Every time I watch this movie, I get struck by the dots on the veil on Adnard yeah. Lingers mm -hmm. um, when she goes to visit Ed Crane in the middle of the night. Yeah, the, I, the, the, the paleness freaky. of her face and the starkness I remember, of the black. I mean, I remember seeing this in the theater and just being so fixated on the dots on that veil. <laughs> I don't know what it is about that scene, and then. What's also funny is that scene is so, so quintessentially Coen Brothers because it doesn't have anything to do really with anything else in the movie. It's like it's like a little pacing moment, and it almost, as you said, it almost gives the ability for the entire movie to propel itself in a totally different direction. Mm -hmm. yep. But you know, but it's really just a little pacing element to kind of complicate things. But it it. You know, but then they rein it back in and kind of go. But the Coen brothers, I think, more so than any other filmmakers in the way that they construct their scripts, they always have weird moments like this that almost feel like they don't fit in the movie. Yes. And it's more of just to build kind of backstory on the characters. Mm -hmm. Fargo. Yes. Uh, it has that scene when she goes to meet the Asian guy that she went to high school with, yes. Mike Yamaguchi or whatever mm -hmm. his name is. And you almost, when you're watching it, you're like, you could have cut that whole scene out. But it's there for pacing, and it's there to kind of... It, it it drives the story, but it also it it also just kind of makes the story more rich. I, I yes. I think there are two principal effects that it tends to have. The, uh, the lawyer, who is presumably Ed Crane's actual lawyer, the one who... Um, I'm going to get the... I, I don't remember the name. The Augustus... Yeah, oh, Galloway or Rita no, it wasn't Schneider. Galloway because it's the um, his friend, the actress oh, named Richard Jenkins. Yeah, Abundus. Abundus. Yeah. There Abundus. we go. Abundus. Yes. I mean, he he implies that that was the normal lawyer that Ed talks to mm -hmm. and who was advising. Like, that, yeah, maybe the only lawyer he knows. Yeah, you know? like, essentially, cause, small cause town. He gets the legal problems. Yeah, S yeah, small town yeah. probity, but the um, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> but it um. It it serves two purposes. There are several scenes like this. There's the Anne scene. There's the abund there's 
Mr. Yeah. Abundus being drunk on his porch. All, all of the Coen brothers have multiple scenes that fit in this little yeah. little niche category. Yeah, it's I mean, like e- a, even the even the pansy technically fits in this category. And the way that the way that they do this is they are intruding on Ed's life in a way that makes him uncomfortable. To emphasize just how uncomfortable Ed is with everyone in his life that doesn't happen to be as bland as he is, which is why, um, <coughs> uh, is it Mandy or Cindy? What is the girl's name? Birdie. There we Birdie. go. Birdie. Um, she is infatuating to Ed because she doesn't talk. All she does is produce she has, music. She has no opinion. <laughs> the music she plays, I mean, Beethoven's sonatas are beautiful, but she doesn't as, um, what, Karkanog says uh, she plays that she stinks at playing them because she doesn't have the heart. Yeah, but neither does Ed. So mm-hmm. Ed perfectly connects with the sort of droll nature of the sonata she's playing. But for everyone else, the people with energy, the people who are racing through their thoughts, and um, he has to suffer through these people's lives because he has to be there. Yes, in spite of the title. Yes, yes. but then on top of that. We also get to see how much of a shit show the rest of the world is around this. Like, even beyond the mere collateral damage, there's almost... It, it, we are still only getting a slice. We have to remember that, yes, this is crazy, but Anne was already crazy. Yeah. Uh, there, <laughs> and the, the way that this, this puts it as the vignette of just being this one particular way that things are insane, and there may be a million other ones on either side of this story that could have happened that just didn't because we're looking at this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a... That's, okay. No, no, that's cool. Mitch, I mean, do you, have, do you have any scenes that stuck out to you at all? Did you, mind, did you like, have any ideas of the voiceover that happened? or did, uh, I mean, was there anything that kind of, like, hit you in this film at all? I think my favorite scene, at least just trying to run through it in my head, is the scene where uh, they're in the, I guess, the jailhouse or just the, the mm-hmm. waiting room in the, the courthouse. Right. Um, where Tony Shalhoub's lawyer character mm-hmm. is having the private Reed investigator. Yes. Yeah. So Reed yeah. Shire is having the private investigator kind of read through what he found yes. about um, uh, Big Dave. Big, yeah. Dave, Big, Dave. Yeah. Big yeah. Dave. And he's like, he has him go through the notes and he's like, okay, you can get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get lost. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I just like that scene, uh, the way that it was pulled up. And then when the lawyer leave, leave or when the uh, private investigator leaves, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Reed and Schneider? Yep. Reed and Schneider's just like, okay, we got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we and got a like, story. And Ed's saying they're thinking, what did we get? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he wasn't looking. I mean, Ed and the rest of them, like Ryan said, they were all, they were all in the darkness. Reed mm-hmm. Schneider was there looking up at God, telling him, what yes. was going on during that scene. Right. I mean, Reed and Schneider looks at them maybe twice. Like, they're not they're not of well, concern. Okay, he, well, that's what I mean. He is a real lawyer, which means he doesn't want to know what happens. He wants to know what story he can bring to the court to win this case. Yeah. What actually happened makes no difference, which mm-hmm. is why, like, you know, in that in the previous scene when he they're at the jail without the private investigator and just... Um, just uh, Ed Crane and Doris and, and Doris, you know, it's like, well, this this whole story stinks. And and Ed goes, well, I did it. And he actually did do it. Yeah, Ed, but it Ed wasn't, confesses. He tells he the truth confesses to his wife him, and the lawyer. But the lawyer is not worried about a confession. All he wants to know is if if putting him as the murderer even works as a story. And in yeah. his head, it doesn't even fucking work. Like, 
it doesn't matter that he killed him or not. It's that it doesn't work as far as a good story to litigate on. Yeah, he didn't take it literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was just another hypothesis. So, I mean, I don't I don't know if you guys know anything about film noirs in general. I'm a I'm a a student of film noir, if you will. I I love <laughs> film noir. I love um, pulp novels. I've done a lot of reading in this. And once again, you know, to me this film hits a lot of buttons that uh, kind of hit on hit hit me. Uh, film noirs in general don't or uh, film noir movies and pulp novels in general they tend to lack heroes right there's no real hero in this movie uh, there's not they're not good people but at the same time they're also interesting because there's uh, film noirs and we got to remember this is all you know post or you know uh, World War II post World War II America where there is this there is this sense this idea of you know we are a great culture we are great peoples and yet, you know, if you're living in 1948, 1949 America, that really hasn't happened yet. You know, you're still, you know, you're still dealing with a lot. And for a lot of people, you know, the idea that I'm just a normal person, you know, in my day-to-day -day life. But he doesn't know. even fully understand what that means. Like, he has all the stuff that makes him a normal person, but he doesn't even really understand why, you know, like he talks about, I have a house and it's got like an electric range and I guess that's everything I need to be a normal person. I mean, I guess you'd say I've got that. it made. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And he talked about when uh, when Dor when he met Doris, yeah. like, what was it, two weeks later, she said, we should get married. And yeah. he was like, okay. Don't you want to know anything more about me? Is there anything better? Yeah. yeah. Why does it get better? Does it get better? <laughs> so you get, you get this, like... But, so everyone's just kind of, like, they're, they're trying to, like, play this America, but they don't even fully understand it themselves. Well, there's also... You know, once again, you get this kind of like um, this Horatio Alger like pre World War II America, where it's like you know the, up, the pull up by your bootstraps, you know America we can do kind ofness. If you you look, go back and you read these like you know this this the, like the the common novels from like the 1910s, 1920s. You know, there are always these like street urchins that make it right. You know, that make it big in the world. And in that sense, their ambition always tends to lead to the most positive of consequences. By the 1930s, 1940s, you know, this begins to get changed and flipped on its head. And Ed Crane, you know, seemingly someone who lacks ambition. Well, even once again, all the people around him seemingly have ambition or, or a purpose in their lives. They purpose, I'd say. I don't know if ambition is. Well, I think the two are importantly different as well, right? Yeah, oh, no, they had uh, some ambition. I mean, uh, Big Big Dave big wanted Dave to run his own store. Yeah. Yeah. Doris wanted to be the comptroller at the new store. She wanted. To be well, they're definitely yeah finances. more ambitious than Ed. Mm -hmm. yeah. But Ed, um, like, he yeah. definitely takes on these different approaches, doesn't he? I mean, he he wants something a little bit more, and that's kind of like what leads to the whole, you know, the whole blackmail episode, right? Dry cleaning, you know, and he kind of almost chastises himself, and he's in a scene with his wife while he's kind of like, well, he's voiceovering this, hypothetically <laughs> thinking about it about. You know, you know, maybe there's something he needs to, to kind of, you know, break himself out of this, right? He kind of sees himself in these roles, and I mean, the major philosophical or biggest idea we kind of get from this, I think, what makes it existential, is this idea that he refers to himself as the barber. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, what in what way do do we, I mean, in our own lives, find ourselves typecast, find ourselves put into these roles that, once again, we perhaps really maybe didn't even choose for ourselves. I mean, I'm I mean, I'm a professor. Right. I mean, what what kind of label do we apply to ourselves in our day to day lives, and how do these things kind of like, you know, are we defined by them? Do or do we struggle to define ourselves in, in in opposite of these different roles or these ideals or these labels we've placed on ourselves? Because if you're if because if you're there, you're there as the barber or yes. as the professor. 
But if you weren't there representing yourself, right? I mean, are you there? Are you not there? How, I mean, I think that's what the kind of idea of the film is kind of uh, oh, see, part of what that there title There wasn't anything to. else about him. He was just the barber, and maybe he was trying to break out of that by investing in dry cleaning. Well, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like he was, but it, then again, I always get caught up on the ambitious thing because I almost feel like, I almost feel like, you know, like the the dry cleaning thing, it was just, like David said, the domino that you needed to push to get the rest of the story rolling. Because right after that initial, you know, transaction, you know, he does the blackmail, he gets the money, and he brings it over to the pansy to start the the dry cleaning business. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's basically the point in which what happens to Ed is completely out of his control. Because next thing you know, his wife is getting accused of the murder that he committed. Right. Nobody questions him. Like, nobody suspects him at all because yep. he wasn't there. Like, mm-hmm. nobody can verify. Nobody even knows. Um, and, and like, his wife, or his, not his wife, his life, like... Like, the circumstances around him, like, he just has no control over at that point, almost in the same way as when he was a barber. But the thing is... Exactly. Like, What's by changed? Him, What's changed? But by him, by him, like, disrupting the, the normal status quo, yes. like, he, therefore, like, he, he got changed, but not the change he was maybe, uh, maybe expecting. Exactly. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that he's the only kind of main character in the movie that doesn't drink. Like, he's smoking every scene pretty much. Yeah, he does smoke uh, pretty heavily. There's a lot of scenes where he's offered alcohol and he refuses it, Mm -hmm. whereas every other character is drinking profusely. I don't know. I I think that's maybe just like a balance because, you know, because obviously his wife is a pretty big lush and always has been. And maybe maybe that's, I always kind of thought maybe that was just like the balance in their relationship. Like, you know, somebody's got to carry her home at the end of the night and he's not going to stop her from drinking, but he'll tolerate it. If that was the only thing, though, I don't think they would have needed to to push that whole idea that he doesn't drink as much. Like uh, I think that Riedenschneider offers him a drink mm-hmm. and he yeah. turns it down. Um, you see that his lawyer friend is drunk on his porch and all the time, much drunk every time he yeah. sees him. Well, uh, Big Dave is is drinking when he at goes the, to at, meet the him at the well, party. Well, they're yeah. they're all kind of like half corpulent. I mean, they're just like so invest. You know, like Riedenschneider. I think one of my favorite things, like when you first see him, he's in the he's in the restaurant and he orders like. Steak, yeah. shrimp cocktail, flapjacks. Like, what kind of menu does this restaurant have? Like, it, but he like can you know he orders this huge copious amounts of food. You know, uh, his wife's a drinker. Big Dave's a liar. I mean, you know, you get, you get like people. You know, once again, are, are taking a lot of things in. And Ed's, of course, a smoker. He he know the, so. But once again, there's this. I think the singularity of what this is, like the barber. You know, the head of the department store. The you know she does the books. You know, the lawyer. I mean, there there are all these kinds of definitions. And, you know, he is the barber. I mean, once again, because you even get it, like, sensed that, you know, we are who we are by what by what we do, like, what defines us. And one of the things, I mean, really the, the, the key philosophical part of this movie is Riedenschneider and is the trial. I mean, the whole end of the movie, I think, really begins to kind of encapsulate these ideas about, you know, who are we, what kind of roles do we sit into, what kind of ways do we think about ourselves in these, in these labels and in these terms, and, and what kind of meaning does this impart on us? And I think, once again, it's also kind of strange, too, that really the departure point, because as soon as he realizes that he's going to blackmail his wife, he begins to almost have these kind of odd questions about what he does. And I think one of the best and oddest moments, when you realize this movie's starting to depart from the normal sense of a movie, is 13 minutes in, when Ed Crane's cutting this kid's hair, and he's just looking at this hair, and he's like, why do we do this? You know, like, I'm going to... 
Like, what's, it, it's, it's part of us, you know, this hair is a part of us, and we cut it off, cut you know? Off. And he starts asking these odd questions, and what is this kid, the guy who fucking never shuts the fuck up, right? His, the first chair, his, his yeah. brother-in-law, who, by the way, his indulgent is talking, has nothing to say. Yeah. Like, he asks him a question, like, why do we cut this off? It's like, yeah, it's good for us, you know? Like, don't question it, like, this is the role, this is the arrangement. And it's just odd that, you know, once again, it seems that a... Is there, what are the downsides from kind of questioning, from thinking outside your role to doing something you're not supposed to do, to being something you're, you know, you're not assigned to think or you're not assigned to be? I mean, this is, once again, part of the core ideas of what this is, because we are, in a sense, are, I mean, if we can get off the plot, so to speak, we are all, in a sense, you know, housed in a world that is not of our choosing. And, you know, this world is not designed for us to be our individual unique so snowflake, right? This world is designed to cog you into a machine. And society's role is to, you know, enforce individuals that make society function better, right? Yeah, but what's horrible is somebody can push a domino and all of a sudden you're accused of a murder you had nothing to do. <laughs> and that happens all the time, according to the, I don't know, like all of the media that's been out. Exactly. Like, well, like, <laughs> once again, they're performing a role, right? Yeah. Somebody has to get caught for this crime, right? Somebody yes. has, justice has to be served. Yeah, I guess that's true on the cops. Yeah, like, they've got to take in somebody, especially in a small town. Like, you've got to wrap that shit up. You can't just have, like, a loose end murder in a small town community. Like, they, we need answers. There's, well, like, I think. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that person did it. It just matters that there's somebody yeah, that's, well, that's it. a great... And it's even more convenient when that person seems to fit hand in glove with what happened. Well, that's, why they, that's why they decided to pin them with the murder to begin with. with. Which Ed did not think about, but just happened to fall in his favor? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Question? But yeah, he did get it in the end because he got fried for a murder he didn't commit. Right. The, but, law, the long arm of the law always gets you. But once again, you know, Ed Crane is the barber. But it's strange, too. Yeah, because, but he doesn't consider himself a barber. But, 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 well, he never has. But that's the problem, right? Do, do, if, is, which one really matters more? What people consider you to be or what you think you are? To, well, I mean, if we're going to consider Reed and Schneider and the trial to be the basis of the philosophy of the movie, which I think is a little presumptuous because he's the city guy. No, I, I don't think Reed, guys, no, Schneider not in, in full. There's a there the whole court scene contains both court scenes that I think we have to consider. I'll get I'll get by that in just a second. But yeah, continue on. Sorry. No, but Reed and Schneider being a big city guy as opposed to a small city guy is entirely about what people do. In city life, people are functions. People yeah. are tools because you don't have enough time to drill down any farther than that. Well, no, but the small city life's the same way. You know, old Bob, he runs the mill store up yonder, you know, and old Joe, he does the feed store down on Yankee Street or something. I mean, that shit happens in small town. I mean, if anything, it's almost more pronounced in but small town it, life because it, there's only one person isn't who does that, it. Isn't that why he used that as his argument to get Ed off on the murder? He, he is the trying, barber. Yeah, he is the barber. He's every... He's your everyday man. Yeah. Like, how could he possibly come up with he some is. elaborate murder Modern plot? If man. you convict him, you are convicting yourself. Yourselves. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, no. But You're that, convicting small-townism. Well, I mean, but that that just plays into the idea that Reed and Schneider is doing that level of reduction because yes. he, he is not calling Ed a barber. He's calling him modern man in such a way that all you fuckers on this jury are the same fucking person to him. Yes. Yeah. The only non-modern man in that building was Riedenschneider. Yes. And so, but is he is he postmodern man? Is he metamodern man? Is yes. He was fucking talking about Fritz or Werner or whatever his yeah. name is. Yes. Heine. Heine. You no, know, he is absolutely postmodern man. 
He's way past your blase bullshit about yes. cutting hair. Yes. He is all about his bar tabs and his hotel that's named after operas and shit. He talks fast. He tells you to shut up because he knows what he's doing and mm -hmm. you can't stop him. Ed won't stop a soul. Mm -hmm. And most people in that small town will not stop a soul. Right. Because they, what they're doing is not important enough to disrupt whatever else is going on. Mm -hmm. Riedenschneider does not feel the same way about anything. Right. Well, but he asks, I think, you know, the, the one of the larger themes that kind of go through this, and I think it's a question we should all stop to ask ourselves, and Nicole, you can ask yourself this question too, which is that <laughs> at the trial, uh, part of what I also think to, take, to be the, name, the meaning of this movie is that um, when it comes out that, you know, maybe perhaps... Uh, uh, perhaps Ed, you know, the did manipulate the situation, did convince his wife to kill herself. Um, you know, her her brother, his brother-in-law, grabs him, punches him to the floor, and screams at him, what kind of a man are you? What kind of man are you? And I love that question. I mean, really, you know, because the, the man who wasn't there, I mean, what kind of man are you? And he's just, you know, as he as he's just looking at him with the, the most emotion in that. I think he cracked him, his mouth, you know, he's like well, he looking up at he him. He doesn't know because he was just listening to Riedenschneider tell him that he was every man. And yeah. he seemed okay. He seemed okay with the assessment. Well, because being everyone is also, of course, being no one. I mean, you might as well <laughs> not be anyone as well at that point, too. I mean, if ever, and it just, I think, kind of rings in. But where... And how we also label Ed is important. You know, he could be a murderer, he could be a blackmailer, he could be a barber, all these things that labels apply. But my favorite, one of my favorite classifications, and it's part of it is both so good, is that Birdie, the young girl that he befriends, who he drives to San Francisco to be mm -hmm. to have an audition from this, you know, prominent music teacher, on the way back she's failed. But she's okay with it. And he's like, that guy's a crank, we're gonna get you someone else. We're gonna you're gonna get someone who sees you the same way I see you, essentially. And, you know, what does she call him? She says, Bob, you know, Ed, you're an, Mr. Crane, you're an enthusiast. <laughs> Bob, Ed Crane, the man who wasn't there, is an enthusiast. So that's my question. Is he an enthusiast? No. No. We no. already established that Bertie is kind of as stupid as he is yeah, Bertie, on, a, on a generic level. Ed, Ed can't believe that he is feeling vibes from someone that match his, and it is driving him insane. That's why he has managed to impose himself... Into the life of what a seventeen-year-old girl 16? who happens yeah, to, yeah, that's yeah. a little unusual. I don't know that she's stupid. She just she well, likes playing. I mean, no, no, no. I didn't mean stupid. I meant like, I meant bland. Like, the way because she doesn't. Oh, she's not talkative in yeah. the same way Ed is. Again, yeah. the music she plays. She doesn't play anything fast. Yeah, he would have been just as happy with a player piano. Because it's just playing Beethoven as it's written down. Yeah, but, with no yeah, but a player piano wouldn't emotion. have been as pretty as 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 Birdie. Well, he wasn't interested in that. Yeah, he's clear. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think you guys are maybe. Re I mean, the way that he reacts. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you about to suggest that someone here is reading too far into something? No, I think I think initially I think you're taking the wrong impression about maybe his his fascination or or the, or the ideas or feelings that he gets from. Because I mean, you got to admit too. I mean. We can't necessarily, because the part of the problem is that, you know, Ed's telling us this story. I mean, you know, if, and this is another good, and this is another good film Nora trope too, which is that, I mean, we can't rely on that Ed is a responsible narrator here as well. And when we see primarily his interaction with Birdie, you know, this young girl who plays the piano, I mean, it is during the most turbulent period of his life. And he even talks, I think, as that, as that, as that montage goes through where he finds this contentment, and part of that contentment is in her playing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, there's to a certain extent, there might be, you know, Birdie, the per Birdie, the young, 
you know, budding sexual 16-year-old, the young Scarlett Johansson. And then there is the the fact that he does not understand what good classical music is. But then there is the music as it is played by Birdie and his reaction to it. And I think those three things could be separated out, that he would be an enthusiast about the way and the contentment that he feels while listening to Birdie play this music. I wouldn't call it enthusiasm, though, because like you said, it was during a very turbulent time in his life, and Birdie is merely a pacing element that helps him distract from what's actually going on around him. And I think, I, I don't know the exact line, but I think he even alludes to something like, not, not like running off, but like, you know, mm -hmm. once, you know, the wife situation is taken care of, that maybe him and Birdie could like, you know, get together and he could try this whole life thing again and you know well he wanted to be her manager i don't know that there was ever any romantic interest from him but still he wanted her. to start over with her like he wanted to try there, this whole thing again i mean we I could call it it depends it, on the word you want I mean, to use she's like it is she's like his escape yeah i think okay. that he realized that he screwed everything up and he wanted to try to do something right because he thought that she would be this brilliant musician, but... Well, well that's but he was that's totally the, out of his league. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's not what she wanted anyway. Yeah. I mean, if you don't want to call it romantic, then sure. I mean, he's specifically almost anti-romantic. There he's, we go. He doesn't, want to, uh, he doesn't want to bring in the, uh, the sex angle even when it's presented to him. It causes him even more problems. But, I mean, whether the word's enthusiast or not, there is a word to describe the way that he feels about her which he betrays constantly in the way that he talks about her because he absolutely sees himself through her. That's why she is the one who doesn't understand because she's young and hasn't done what he's done. Mm -hmm. Ed is clearly, because he doesn't know who he is, is willing to take outlandish risks like blackmailing a supposed friend to get in on a venture capital scheme. He's the kind of person who can, on the right day where he is just out of his skin enough, he can do something like that. And he's afraid that Birdie is going to miss her shot to be the great thing that he could have been if he had recognized yep, it. Yep, exactly. And but, but the reason he sees that in her and not in anyone else is because he sees himself in her. Right. Because she acts the way he does. Right. So he, he talent without, without insight. Right, like this idea that there, I mean, there, like there's just so, there, there's something lacking within with what is what is what is Ed and Birdie? What are they lacking? Passion. Oh, that's that's low. I, yeah, that's good. Let's, enthusiasm. Let's, that's yeah. <laughs> no, but that that's the thing. It's enthusiasm is yeah. not the right word. No, I know. But there I is know. there's absolutely a thing because they they both have they both have the sort of the the somewhat existential. I hesitate to call it brooding. But to some degree, that's yeah. sort of what it is. Yeah, is the uh, the strong silence of of being who they are. Well, that that's might be what Ed sees in her, but I don't know that that's how she actually is. Like, yeah, there's one say, time. Well, no, sees... she's she clearly doesn't see eye to eye with him. Yeah, I mean, she's taken aback by everything Ed does for her. I well, mean, he's she's way more. Surprised. Well, that's the thing is, he's way more introspective than her because she's just kind of like a bland, nice girl. Yeah. I mean, she plays like one. She is one. For, I mean, she's nice and well, but, but not, they, don't but see, someone, they don't see eye to eye. No, no, they clearly don't. But like a barber who just you know goes through the motions, who gets married because someone asked him. I mean, that's fucking polite as well. I mean, you know, Ed Crane doesn't seem like a man with a lot of enemies. You know what I mean? And no. the same way, but at the same way, he's not because you know he, he doesn't really make an impression to begin with. But at the same time, I mean, there is, you know, what what I think is the kind of commonality between them is that. You know, she is just this, absolutely that. But Ed Crane, you know, as I think part of the message is, is that what 
what they both, what Ed lacks is what makes him not impressionable, right? What makes, what the characteristic that he lacks is what makes him seem like he's not really there. And I think that, you know, getting it to the heart of this idea is, you know, what, why does Ed's life, I mean, what, what part of Ed's life is more fucked up? Everything leading up to the blackmail note or everything afterwards? Because that's the weird thing you get to. I mean, I mean, is is Ed's life a tragedy before this moment, or is it a tragedy afterwards? Because both, both, both kind of, but in different in different fuck. ways. I mean, because he's he's kind of a tragic character to begin with, and then you know, like when he tries to do something, it's just continuously more tragic mm-hmm. after that. I mean, if if none of that had happened, he finds out later that his wife had been pregnant, even mm-hmm. though he hadn't had sex with her in years. What you, how's or, the line? Um, I have not done the intercourse. The, the love act. Have, <laughs> haven't done the sex act. Yeah, the sex act. Years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even if it wasn't for the blackmail, his life would still be screwed up. He'd be stuck with his wife being pregnant right. with Big Dave's baby. Yeah, no. Okay, there's, that makes... So something, something was going to burst the bubble at some point point yes oh, I, there's no reason to believe that his life was going to go on as it was but uh, to be fair in the way that it's set up the fact that dave commits this on a whim the way that he does he does say that he could potentially be said to have it made he may not necessarily agree and he doesn't seem to which is why he's hemming and hawing about it you know he talks about the cool stuff in his house but he doesn't seem to be well, he terribly has no, he proud has no of it connect- well that's what i mean he himself doesn't have any connection to this stuff. Like, he's married to mm-hmm. Doris, but he has no real connection with her. Like, he has this house, but it's just there, and he lives there. He has no connection to it. He has this job, but he has, like, he just doesn't feel connected to anything. No, and I'm really reminded, I mean, it's it's a, it's kind of jokingly. Except Birdie, then he finds a connection with Birdie, which is why he kind of gets sort of enlightened and becomes an enthusiast, because that's like the first actual connection like he has. Mm-hmm. Well, you can see the lack of connection. Like after his after his wife dies, he comes back home, and he talks about how he was just wandering around doing nothing. Yeah, it just feels like, like a strange house. house. Yeah. yeah. So even if he didn't have that sort of connection with his wife when she was gone, he felt like he was missing something still. Mm-hmm. Well, that it was empty. It was empty, right? Like yeah. when he go- when he goes. I mean, his his life's happening around him. I mean, that's. A, I mean, and to a certain extent, I mean, there is that is a, an existential problem or a dilemma that we have here. We know where we look at what control we have in our lives. We uh, we accept that we we lack control, and but we really don't reflect on where where exactly we fucking gave the control up. You know, it's like anything. You look behind you. I mean, you know, one step and one step and one step is a problem. But sooner or later, you look back and there's fucking miles of decisions you've made, and you're like, "Good, you know." Or haven't made, which is the same as making a decision. <laughs> exactly. Well, once yeah. again, exactly. Yeah. You make that step forward where you're like, "I'm not going to do anything." You know, you still move forward, or if you will, the earth moves. Yeah, the, the earth more moves earth you, the moves less you, you move. Yeah. So I mean, you can't. There's no really way out of this thing. <laughs> but the, the so, I mean, you know, we talked before. I mean, you kind of like jokingly aside, where like, you know, if you stop at a point in your life and you wonder like, "How the fuck did I get here?" And you're like, "How do you have so little agency in your life?" I'm like, <laughs> "Man, I mean." Maybe it's because you haven't been there yet. I'm gonna give you the birdie speech, all right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be edge. You're gonna be. Maybe it's because you haven't been there and looked behind you or anything like that. But I do think there is that kind of existential idea of, you know, if if I had made a decision two, three, five, ten years ago, would I've put myself here right now, doing what I'm doing right now? 
And I think that by looking around and making those kinds of ideas or thinking it in terms of that way, you get a broad existential perspective that you look at yourself currently and then you project yourself as a being in time and looking forward into the future. And you're like, God damn, am I going to be there? Right? Am I going to be there when, where I want to be or where I'm going to be in the future? Am I actually going to be there? And it's just, you know, I, I love I, I love the themes in the I love how the film begins with the barber pole that seems like it's moving upward, right? And that's what, like, when I was a kid, I actually thought there was shit moving in those things. Like, I thought this stuff was, like, actually had to be, like, recycled and pumped back down. Optical illusion, sure. my Exactly, friend. yes. But the idea that, once again, things are moving or upward, but it is it is an illusion. I mean, there, it's... The barber pole is it's 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 fluid and in motion, and then it's not. I mean, it's these things kind of happen, and you know, once again, Ed Crane kind of lives this life, and I just think Ed's Ed's problem is our problem. I mean, it, I think it really is. I I don't know if Ed's problem is our problem necessarily. I mean, I kind of like, and I say that only like I'm I'm thinking back to what are like his reactions after these like big events happen. Like he he kills Big Dave. I mean, it was in self defense to a certain extent. But, I mean, he does just kill the guy, and he just, he goes right back to where he was sitting before and mm-hmm. just picks the routine right life, back up. Life moves on. Yeah. I mean, he he stabs him, looks at his hands, no blood, nope. eh, yeah. goes home, and then finishes his sentence. Yes. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Once again, talk about the, the, the mechanics of storytelling in that. Really, really good. Really, really well done, that whole murder scene. Well, I mean, that that one scene kind of justifies the narration in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And it speaks to the way that the narration is being told. I, I would have to, I'd have to go back and look at it specifically, but I assume the given, if we just assume that whatever is narrated is all the men's magazine is telling us, I assume there's some entertaining dichotomies in there. But I mean, for what it's worth, I, I don't know that he confesses to killing Big Dave. Doesn't need to. Yeah, I I think he at the end he he expresses some remorse for the occurrences that happened, but no, I don't think he ever explicitly. His whole murder, yeah. him murdering Big Dave, is between two sentences in his yeah. narration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so. like I said, when he does make the confession, nobody takes it seriously. Yeah. Like Riedenschneider just sees if it works as a viable story, and when it doesn't, he throws the whole idea out. But yeah, I don't think he ever actually like well, confesses that, and feels remorse necessarily for that killing. I mean, like I said, he feels bad kind of about the the whole situation at the end of the day how it went down because like a lot of people's lives got pretty screwed up, but it nothing about Big Dave specifically. Well, when he got arrested for killing the the pansy, um he told Reed and Schneider the whole story, and at that point I, I think he it's implied that Reed and Schneider believed him. But he still didn't want to use that. Uh, yeah, it's just, that's what he means. Because a bad the fact story. that he, yeah. The, yeah, the fact that he killed Big Dave wasn't even. It it was almost like it wasn't important. Yeah. Oh, you know what? That's why Riedenschneider is postmodern man is right there. What? The truth is secondary to yeah, the story. Yeah, it's not important. Yes. Yeah, I mean that that's an open and shut on him being yeah. beyond he, modern. Well, man. what does we he know say? What happened? If nobody was there. And well, that's the we thing. And, and well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, and he even says that he's like, well, and then he doesn't want to do anything to. In, oh, because when he tells him the real story, he's like, well, we can't bring any of that story up because then that implicates you in the murder of Dave. And we're yeah. trying to get you off for a murder yeah, exactly. here yeah. that has nothing to do with Dave. So we're not going to implicate you in the yeah. process. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, one of the great things of that Schneider defense is the idea that he tells the jury to look, don't look at the facts. 
<laughs> but look at the meaning <laughs> of the facts. <laughs> but the facts, the facts have, have no, no meaning. meaning. <laughs> it's like so so he well is done. Postmodern man. Yeah, no, and you get this. You get this. This really, this really, really wonderful section in the film itself. Now. I think we got to kind of deal with some of the more controversial elements of the film. I think you touched on it with Anne Nerdlinger and the fact that she comes to big uh, to come to Ed's house in the in the middle of the night and tells him a story about uh, about UFOs, about aliens. And I think as we I mean, as we can kind of go ahead and wrap the film up, I think we're heading towards the fact that the movie ends essentially very existentially as well with Ed being condemned, right? Yes. Condemned to death. Almost like a like a stranger sort of right feel to it though because he's not I mean, he's not going kicking and screaming. He's no, he's basically right. accepted he's that well, this is how this is going to go yeah, down. Well, and he's being condemned specifically if the tone of that electric chair of the electric chair room can be believed. He's being condemned to the purgatory he deserves. Yes. yes. Well, the thing is too is that you know, from exist- I mean, we're all con- I mean, we're all on death row. I mean, yeah. you know, like we're all we're all condemned to die at some point or another. And the strange thing, of course, is is that in the stranger or invitation to a beheading, or even in this, I movie, haven't gotten to invitation to no, beheading uh, yet. Nabokov, Sorry, baby. I know you, you, gotta, you told me over the years. Got to get into that one. But the strange thing is, is that there is there in, in these kinds of existential novels, when when someone finds that they finally are condemned, and the, and the knowledge of that condemnation is is made apparent to them. There is a weight relief, right? There is a freedom that they find in themselves and in their situation that they had not realized before. And in the strange sense that kind of comes from this, you know, Ed, you know, once again, if we see where he's actually, where we're actually told or we find out that he's actually telling our story, it's from a jail cell as he's writing it to a men's magazine somewhere, five cents a word or something like that. Yeah. Not too bad. That's a bad one. I get that deal. <laughs> anyway, um, but the idea is, is that, you know, he you is... murder someone. All right, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and then get condemned to death and discover freedom. That'd be. Then they can do a twelve-part podcast on you. Oh, I'm telling you. <laughs> when's, he, when's he spending that money? He's not giving it to anybody. He, he doesn't know it, anybody. He may give it to his brother-in-law to try to buy back the. Yeah, he did kind of screw the brother-in-law. Uh, yeah. Kind of got screwed yeah. over because they had to give the barbershop back to the bank. Look, that was his fault. Maybe all he right. just needed money for the commissary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well, he, he had a bad cigarette habit after all. Yeah, you, know, you got to keep that up. Oh, Riedenschneider still needed to get paid. Yeah, he said he usually that. doesn't work for that cheap after he signed the house to him. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He said it was as a favor because yeah. he didn't get to use his brain. Uh, yeah, <laughs> showtime never right. came. Yeah. So um, so as we kind of go through, I think one of the more controversial elements, and when I was looking online, this kept coming up over and over and over again, and it is the UFO scene at the end. Now, I had seen, I mean, when I was looking up some reviews online for this, uh, a lot of people... A, they, if they if they liked it, they didn't love it because you know they didn't really connect personally with the story, and there's not a lot to connect to. I mean, you really have to well, be. Well, that's a, a shitty a, reason to not like it. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, no, they liked it. They yeah. just didn't love it. Yeah, I mean, I saw someone um, guy ranked on the Atlantic. They had 30 years of Cohen's. He ranked, I read that article. Yeah, too. he ranked 16. This is like at the bottom of the list. He like this guy just was not a big fan of this film. Um, what was, was his uh, number one? Uh, was it Christopher Orr? He's the movie critic for the Atlantic. Yeah, I think it might have been him. I usually like him. Yeah. He put... um, Well, not anymore. No. No Country. I think he put No Country. No, Miller's Crossing ended up being his number one. Miller's Crossing, which is... I have not seen it. Well, I mean, you know, but if you get to put, you pick your personal favorite. But that's, yeah, the Miller's, it, all the Coen brothers, they have, like, certain scenes that just, like, that one fade shot in Miller's Crossing. I love that. The, you, you, you had it on your Facebook. Fucking Facebook uh, back, backboard picture. They, all have, they all have just, like, scenes that I just love. Oh. Oh. Also, I mean, 
Miller's Crossing does have the best shootout sequence to Oh Danny Boy that I've ever seen in a movie before. So is it could, in the top three? Top three of shootout scenes to Oh Danny Boy? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the uh, okay, where the fuck was I? Going? Okay, yeah. So I mean, the UFO scene. This gets picked out particularly in people's ire that 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 there is this UFO scene. I mean. Why include this? I mean, why? <laughs> but I told why you, do this? if you look back at all of the Coen Brothers film, it's like a pacing. It's 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 like a script pacing element that they use in they they use this type of thing in all of their movies. And so I feel like when you watch a Coen Brothers film, you can't get too caught up on some of this stuff because. Like Lebowski, for instance, if you like watch that movie thinking you're gonna like get to the end of the mystery, you've totally missed the point. You just have to enjoy the ride as it comes at you and not fucking question how they got there because how they got there is so fucking confusing anyways, it doesn't matter. Yes. And the dude explains it anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's like I just I, I find it funny that you would get caught up like just from that one scene. I really liked the UFO scene because I think I didn't feel it was out of place. I felt like it worked. I, I liked it. I think yeah. it, I think it worked perfectly fine because it was after it was after the circuitous romp of justice finally condemning and dealing with all the bloodshed that it needs to to get the machine back together. There's an alien force apparently and all the cell doors were open and Ed walks outside which to Ed is equally plausible. Yeah. Like, this is not... I mean, for crying out loud, Anne already believes this. That just makes him... That already... that like He's not even unique. That just makes him number two. Like, or arguably number three. Mm -hmm. In the story of people who have seen a UFO before. Like, it's not even... Like, the most bizarre thing that can happen, an event that has literally never transpired as far as the government will tell us, <laughs> in real life, doesn't stick out that much... Given the weight of the bullshit Ed's already gone through in this movie, well, it's, I mean, it's it's too it's funny for two things. I mean, you either take the perspective that the UFO scene actually happened, like yeah, of the course. way it happened, or it's a dream sequence. And okay, so let's take both. Actually, okay, I want to I want to put a, I want to put a, no a I want to put a third thing. Okay, in very stressful situations, you have DMT responses from your brain and um. Most people that think they've been abducted by aliens were probably just having a natural DMT experience. So that's what he spent the men's magazine money on. D oh, no, yeah. well, in a in a very stressful situation, you would you'd be able to trigger that anyway. So maybe like his brain just got like so racked racked up. Ed he, Crane. Well, but it, this is an internal struggle here. <laughs> Terribly. He's on death row. I'm just, yeah. I'm just Even bringing up him. another possible theory because the dream sequence thing is stupid. No, okay. <laughs> if I may, it's definitely not as much fun. Yeah. No, no. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay, no. But okay. So the thing is, I think the funny, the fun thing is, and why maybe you can bring it back to the existentialism and the humor behind the idea of it being a dream sequence, is the idea that if Ed is in fact dreaming and can do anything, I mean, once again. We got to set up the scenario. He's writing, or he, he's he's awoken in the in the night in the jail cell. His cell's open. There's no one around. He goes. He walks out. And the door's open. He opens it. He sees a UFO outside the prison walls, mm. and the UFO looks at him, shines a light on him, and then disappears. And what does he do? Walks back. Walks back in. Back in, in. <laughs> he goes back in to sit. In his, I mean, if you're dreaming <laughs> that you could do anything you wanted to do, 
Ed's going to go and go back and just re, you know confirm and continue on his fate as it has been assigned to him. I think. Uh, All right, so, fair enough. Yeah, I like. I think that's a cute idea that it would be a dream sequence. Now, once again, I like to entertain the possibility that it actually happened. Like that, this was this kind of psycho and the psycho you know uh, uh, alien type experience. I'm I'm perfectly willing to believe it actually happened. Trust me on that point. I'll buy it as an out of body experience. Well, you, yeah, see, uh, I didn't really think of it as a dream sequence so much as like a daydream sequence. So much as this is something that he's just kind of thinking about. His mind is reflecting on the UFO because that's the only well, thing yeah, that Andrew you know, and, talked about yeah, during the entire movie. Yeah, said that the whole thing was just <laughs> yeah. a big UFO conspiracy, anyways. So let's see how that plays out. But he, yeah. you know, he's kind of seeing things that he as he hadn't seen them before. Too. I mean, one of my favorite sequences when I first saw this is when he's he's uh, uh, driving or he's walking down the street, and then all of a sudden it goes into slow motion, and everyone's walking against him, and he's yeah. moving in the other direction, and he talks about how he's like feels changed and how he's looked at things and. You know, and I mean, that no one notices him. When yeah, he no one by. notices him, and that he and that he feels like disconnected from where he's at in a time and place. And you know, I've had experiences where I've been around people, like in a mall, and I'm like looking around at all these people, and I'm like, they are not. We are not experiencing the same thing. Like where where these people are at and what they're experiencing. Like I do not feel this like just joy of buying a bikini that this person's feeling or this you know person enjoying you know food court lo mein. Like we are not experiencing the joy the same way here. And it's kind of like, you know, disassociatedness that he feels and how he finds a kind of freeing feeling in that, I think is one of the more positive ways that you need to kind of look at this. And that's why, you know, kind of roll our eyes about existentialism. But, you know, I think that's, we talk about personality types. I think it's an EI thing, you know, like uh, eyes can kind of recognize this existentialism, this introvert idea. Whereas, you know, other people just don't really seem to have any time for it. Like, why are you worried about this kind of shit? Like, just shut up and fit in and everything will be fine. Well, and then you could also, just in the vein of Coen Brothers movies, you could just do a bit of more black comedy read on it where, you know, the stuff then just becomes, it's like, it's like tragic, but yet comical. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can almost read that into all of their films to a certain extent. Couldn't the UFO scene also be, if he, if he's just thinking about it consciously, this is just like some daydream that he's having. um, It could be just him accepting the fact that he deserves to be on death row because Mm -hmm. it's like, if the aliens were real. They'll open all the cells for me because they're the ones who did this. They'll they'll set me free. Or so you're right, saying he already garbage. accepted his fate. And that's why like, he just well, walks I back deserve, in. That's why he just walks back in. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> well, even if that was the case, I still am a bad person, and I. Or we're not we're yeah. not opening this conspiracy up because, like I said, yeah. you you, you could have taken yeah. you you could have they could have just decided, hey, we're gonna go take this on a conspiratorial level after this, but we yeah. never we never cross that bridge. No, but he, it's 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 there. No, he he is his freest, being led to the to the execution chamber. I mean, that is where you know he is at his at, at his freest moments. But it's also, I think, to because I mean, in the end as well, I. I do find that Ed has a an ability to be heartfelt in this film. I mean, he he is he has normal emotions, even though they're not ex- overtly, you know, demonstrated in the film. I mean, when he talks about his motivation, he says, "Yeah, I guess I guess it kind of burned me up that my wife was cheating on me, or that you know this." I mean, it does. Well, like I said, it's not that he doesn't feel things, but he feels disconnected from where he's at and his own feelings about these things as well. It's because they don't match how other, like he sees people, you know, entertaining, and he doesn't yeah. understand. Like he's like he knows he doesn't like it, but he doesn't necessarily understand why other people like it either. Right, like the IE separation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you get these, you get this rolling theme through it, and you know, I I do find as we kind of like end towards the end of this film. I mean, I do find the the last scene to be particularly touching. I mean, I really do. As he is kind of let in, and as he's reflecting on this, 
and as he is you know talking about how you know he he will see he feels like he will see or somehow connect in with people and he knowing that he has not been perfect and and I think the the tragedy of being able to recognize about oneself you know that we are not perfect and that you know some people tell you to fake it till you make it even if it means you know looking past your own failures or your own faults or where you've been bad to people in the past you know like don't worry about that's a little why you got to be a downer you know like especially about yourself you know like what well, other people worry about that stuff about you i don't think ed's afraid to kind of connect that stuff and and look at him himself as a person like that and as the film leads towards its kind of emotional crescendo he's in this he's in like i said this this purgatorial idea is in place because he's both not innocent and yet not entirely yeah. guilty of of everything like as I well said, he has remorse for everything that went down but not for like the specific thing that he did mm-hmm. and not to read too far into the last scene, but he does assume he's going to see Doris in Purgatory yeah. as well. Yeah, well, exactly. But like, he, She's not going to hell for what she did either. No, and I, once again, and, and to a large extent, I don't think that he could feel someone's motivations or that he would judge like Big Dave too harshly either. Well, I, mean, and, I guess I kind of but understand. Then the other thing know, like he does, say something like that. Well, but the other thing he does disclose like right at the end too was he didn't even fully understand the whole situation until he had finished writing about it. Right. You know, so like he's actually having kind of, you know, his, you know, at the very end, like he's finally putting the whole story together too. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it's not enough because it's not enough to merely know that this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. That there's a continuum to it that that, in- that leads even beyond that leads not merely beyond back in time, but also just in general the way that all of this comes together. It's the way that. He talks about, and I assume, well, I was out for five minutes, you guys mentioned the fact that... that <laughs> Make no that assumptions. Inherit, you know, married into a job, inherited a business. I mean, almost everyone who lives in this town is apparently already part of a legacy that Ed has now fucked up completely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is what he has... He has destroyed this part of a machine that was going on before these people were there and will almost certainly be adopted by everyone who comes after them. Like, they, this part of the universe will be closed off and taken care of by other means. I mean, there, there's a bit of mess in the meantime. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Ed, Ed essentially ended the legacy of a variety of people. Mm-hmm. No, he did, and I mean, he, did, you know... They or a variety of families, I should yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, and they don't go into it, like, horribly, but, yeah, I mean, he basically disrupted the, yeah, the entire, you know, momentum of this small town. I mean, even, like, to the, the extent that he had to hire Riedenschneider from from San Francisco. I mean, there is nobody in this town equipped to deal with a murder city. This has never happened before, yeah. Yeah. you know? Doesn't the brother, the brother has like a nervous breakdown and just starts drinking, doesn't go to work anymore. Like, you know, like a lot of people's lives are disrupted. And he feels slightly sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess so. <laughs> Do we want to round on anything else? Any particular scenes? God, I just love it. I really, I really do like this movie. Oh, once again, if you want to... There's a lot of, once again, I've kind of, as you've kind of noticed, I tended to focus some, on more on the philosophical themes of this movie. Uh, we hinted at voiceover and editing and story movement throughout the podcast as well. If you want a good, if, you, if you're looking for a story in a film that is relayed in a particularly silky way, I think that this film does represent that very well. 
I think that, once again, the Coens are, are great filmmakers in the way that they were able to synthesize all the elements of filmmaking. Uh, if you, if, I'm sure many of you have heard of or at least seen um, No Country for Old Men, where that film is almost the, the, the nadir, the absolute zenith of their filmmaking skills. Where, those are the opposite. Those, those mean exactly oh, sorry, opposite they, they, things. Sorry, Which one the, do you mean? The absolute peak of their okay. filmmaking ability, <laughs> right. where you have the um, you know, sound... Uh, uh, you have storytelling, you have visuals, uh, striking visuals, all coming together in a very, very s singular way. And this film, I think, one of the reasons this is the top three for me is that I find that, first and foremost, this film is a masterclass in technique of how to make a film. Uh, the visuals... All other films are sort of like that. Well, I okay, but I think, <laughs> well, this one to me is a particular example of one in terms of editing, visuals, sound, story... All of it kind of culminating in a very, very well done and well made film. And then, of course, for me, you add on the you know the philosophical appreciation that I have for the themes of this film, the fact that it is a film noir, uh, and that clearly explains why this is the top three film, top three Coen Brothers film for me. Absolutely. What is it? Uh, the Man Who Wasn't There. It's a movie about a barber that wants to get into dry cleaning. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the movie. It's in my top four. Coen Brothers movie, nice. <laughs> along with the other three that I've seen. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where I'd rank it amongst those four. Um, no Country is probably my favorite, definitely. Uh, it, it's probably, I think I would like Burn After Reading a little bit more, but I did enjoy this one. Okay. I didn't necessarily want this to be summaries, but I oh, guess if okay. we're going to summarize, we, we can summarize. Very, <laughs> that's what we're doing. I can back off of that if you want. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> it's just if anybody had any particular things they wanted to talk about after after what we've covered. I mean, I'll, I'll give my, my summary at this point. I wanted to, or no, I'll bring up I'll bring up the reason I thought of that in the first place. Inside Lewin Davis. Okay. I have not seen that one. Oh, really? Okay, so... I think I missed that movie night. That's good. So you've okay. been True Grit and Inside Lewin Oh, Davis. God, I'm okay. short too, I've seen, Cohen I feel like a then. failure. There's a third one coming up? Well, Jesus. that one I'll see in the theater. Right. I still have some regal in, bucks. In the same There's, way that this movie... Five, I, Mitchell? Five? That's five. Five. I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that I like the... I like the domino analogy within this movie where Ed Crane is in a world full of dominoes and just, like, taps one of them and fucking four people die. <laughs> and, like, this this world was so on edge. It was so ready to go off. Inside Lewin Davis is the... Since I know we will never review that on this podcast unless it goes on for, like, 20 years. Um, or we do a 30 Years of Cohen or something. Someone's got to learn to play the guitar if we're going to yeah. do that. Oh, Lou, Lou's good at... Lou's yeah. excellent I, at Once the I guitar. see all the Cohen brother movies, then we can... No, go back if, to Inside uh, Lewin Davis. If we can do yeah. a retrospective. If you like The Man Who Wasn't There... Um, if you think Cohen Brothers movies are depressing, then you probably shouldn't watch Inside Lewin Davis. Which seems like... I mean, in... In a group that people consider to be sad movies, it's a sad, sad movie. But it's amazing because it takes the exact same idea as this movie and flips it 180 degrees. Where in, uh, where in the man who wasn't there, Ed does almost nothing and catastrophe occurs. <laughs> Inside Lewin Davis is the struggle of one small town man trying to do something and failing so hard that the beginning and end of the movie are disturbingly identical. Mm -hmm. um, so they're like inverse, yes, inverse uh, movies. Yeah, I recommend watching the two in tandem to see just what the scope of this little small town... Again, I keep saying small town, but that's, no, they that's do what Coen Brothers Yeah, they do a lot of small town stuff. Blood Simple was a small town. I mean, No Country for Old Men was essentially isolated 
Texas. Texas. Yeah, it's people yeah. who don't talk much, who don't get yeah. out much, frankly. They don't have a lot of interaction with the outside. They're not having a great time, and then bad things happen to them. Fargo was a small town where bad um, shit happened. Uh, <laughs> no, that's that's about. I mean, if no one else here has, I, you two have seen Lou and Davis, right? Yeah, you guys have at least Fucking seen. Them. Saw it in the theater. I've seen them all in the theater. Basically. All right. Do you have any comment on that? No, I I don't um, like that one. No, I I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't. I don't see the same. I, I mean, you do get the kind of bashing your head against the wall approach. Uh, I do think that they're that they're that they have or do different things. The Coen Brothers, you know, do have a you know. Once again, the the crime element is kind of lacking in Lewin Davis, uh, whereas this this one it does have a kind of essential feature of it being uh, uh, involving crime or morality. I mean, Lewin Lewin's crimes are. The fact, you know, what does she say? Carrie Mulligan's character says, you're just an asshole, you know? Like, you just, you're not necessarily a bad person, you're just an asshole. And um, the thing is, is that there is this, uh, if you if we're going to, you know, use a, a, an existential trope, I mean, there's a kind of Sisyphusian struggle that goes ha- that goes on here, no matter how much uh, Lewin Davis does, I mean, he is not going to succeed. <laughs> and all it takes is for him to kind of realize that, you know? Like, and yet the fact that he, he uh, seems to stubbornly refuse to do so is kind of the uh, the overall dynamic that you get within this. I mean, Ed Crane, you know, has already resigned himself. I mean, he already, has, I think he already understands something about himself that Lewin Davis. If anything, I mean, it's just too bad that they're kind of clearly not at the same time period. Um, but we were like talking about Son of Man, who wasn't there. Like this could be like the sequel <laughs> to like Ed Crane had a kid and it was Lewin Davis. I'd see that movie. I'd pay to see that movie again. No, I just, I just like that. I like that the two have the same cast of characters with just totally the, different outcomes. The entire world flipped somehow. <laughs> yes. By the same directors. Well and they and the Francis McDormand's not in that one. Right. They do kind of take the fuck, these, that doesn't even count. No, they do kind of take is, is it a Coen Brothers movie if is Francis McDormand is no. in it? No. They're all Francis McDormand movies. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh hell. So I'm looking forward to the new one though. If you want to preview ahead of where we're going, whose movie is it to pick? pick it is Nicole. Nicole, have you picked a movie? I have picked a movie. I'm going to go with the 2013 uh, Her. Excellent, excellent. By Spike Jones. By Spike Jones. Yes. Have you seen yes. It? I have watched it. I enjoyed it way more. I have to watch it again. I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. And um, though I wasn't thrilled with the way that they handled the AI. I do like that they brought up the topic, and I think there's a lot of fun stuff to unpack uh, regarding that story. Am I the only one who hasn't seen this movie? I haven't seen it. Excellent. I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to feel about it. Because this is the kind of movie I normally I, hate. Okay, okay. Lou, Lou took about three to four days to kind of convince me to watch it, because I was like, no, I'm not watching another Joaquin Phoenix movie where his face in a pensive look is going to be 98% of the screen time. But he's, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. I had much resistance to watching it. If you enjoyed ScarJo in The Man Who Wasn't There, <laughs> you'll enjoy her yeah, even more in her. Yeah, well, you don't see her, so form. it's great. Yeah. Uh, oh, wait, are we going to start having a... We're gonna start having a through line where you gotta play telephone. No, I actually, Scar- I actually, Scarlett Johansson's the connection. I actually here. don't care for Scarlett to... Johansson too much. So the, that connection had nothing to do with my choice of this film. It just happened. I think I actually had no, it picked out before he picked. No, I just mean we have to have we have to have a six degree. We have to have one degree for okay. each movie. It's like okay. this one. It stars these two, and then we'll go to 
We'll do a Kevin Bacon marathon. Excellent. And make it happen. So actually, I, I have not seen. I have not seen her. So I'm looking forward to it. Has, have you? Uh, have it, has anyone else seen any other Spike Jones movie other than that fucking terrible? Uh, uh, what's that? Little Monsters thing or whatever he did. I saw a, um, while the raw things are. No. I saw a music video directed by. I Jones. did. Did he direct count? adaptation? I know Kaufman did, wrote it. He did adaptation I and love, being John Malkovich. I love adaptation. And, and being John Malkovich and lukewarm on. Oh, I love that movie. Any movie where you have a line like, "Do you understand what a metaphysical can of worms this is?" Like any movie that has that kind of a line in it, it's going after a warm spot in my heart. That's for sure. I have that's seen a lot of sure. his mo- his music videos as yeah. well. Yeah. So we 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 tackled our first Cone Brothers. We song. put a man there. That's what we did. There wasn't a man there. We put a man there. Now, mm. Ryan, Nicole, Mitchell, me. Thank you, everyone. Yes, you're welcome. Until next time. Watch her. And uh, other than that, have oh, a good and, week or whatever. And watch this movie. And if if you oh, yeah. if you don't like a Coen Brothers film the first time you see it, it just means you need to watch it again. Yes. Like every movie we've watched so far. Excellent. Got to instill this practice. What? Yeah. Just assume you're going to sit down for four hours instead of two. When are we going to do uh, Speed Racer and convince everybody that it's the best movie ever? We're probably not going to manage the <laughs> latter. We'll do the former at um, a later date. Okay. Yeah. We'll have to have a couch full of people for that, though, to make it yeah. impossible. And mushrooms. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's the mat. You don't need them. You just need a big I'm talking screen. Ab- I'm talking about enhancing your experience. You don't need... That will kill you. No. This is no, if, it won't. They're totally safe. Look, if you were no, under the, the influence the, of the anything... Problem, the problem isn't the mushroom safeness. No, it's speed, speed racers, <laughs> the unsafe entity, <laughs> and the, the unsafe yeah. variable in this equation. No, absolutely. No, I saw Speed Racer in the theater in IMAX, and if I'd been under the influence of anything at the time, it would have killed yeah. me. No, I can confirm this. I mean, I saw Speed Racer without under under the influence, and I felt like I was going to self harm myself. So I can <laughs> I can definitely speak to the danger this movie represents. So much purple. <laughs> and on that note, yeah, it's good. Oh, this is David Paddock. Thanks everybody for listening. <laughs> <laughs>